Welcome to Hope City Church, Melbourne, Australia. Stay tuned for another inspiring message by Pastor Andrew McGrath. I want to preach a message today for forerunners. For those that have a heart to partner with God in changing cities and nations that are hungry to be used by God. Is there anybody here like that? Amen. Amen. So this is a passage for forerunners. For those that want to prepare the way of the Lord, for, you know, we've spent a long time talking about the third day church going from, a, from sons, sorry, from children to sons to fathers. We've used that principle of asking, seeking and knocking, that as we progress in our Christian walk, that there is more of a demand that we partner with God. It's easy to ask, isn't it? Ask and you receive easy to get salvation. You just ask, Jesus come into my heart and you become a child of God. Then we begin to seek him and it becomes a bit more difficult because we've got to put in some effort. God begins to change the way we think, feel and choose. Then we begin to knock where we begin to wrestle with God over the destiny of a nation or a city. This is what separates the men from the mice. This is, what, this is what really defines whether you're a forerunner or not. Those that have an understanding of the purpose and the things of God. And that's what I want to share with you today as we look at this passage of Scripture in Luke 1.13. But particularly today, I want to talk to you about dealing with the spirit of unbelief. And that's what forerunners do. They break the power of unbelief in their own lives in the life of their church. In fact, you may not realize this, but in every church across this nation, this spirit is prevailing alongside a lot of other spirits. The Holy Spirit is prevailing more than any spirit, of course. But the spirit of unbelief is in every church, is in a degree in every believer. This is a thing that we battle with, that largely that most people are totally unaware of. And, and it's a problem, as I'll show you today, because unbelief is like like a brick that you can put down on the ground and tie a, a, a rope or a cord to the brick and you tie it to a helium balloon. And we have faith. We have faith in God to do great things. But it seems like there's something that's holding us down, that's not allowing our faith to begin to do what God wants us to do. And so we need to cut off this spirit of unbelief that is pervasive in society. So when we believe for things, we pray for things, we always have faith because God has given us a measure of faith. But there's a spirit of unbelief that we constantly seem to be battling with that God wants to break and demolish in our lives. And, and the forerunning spirit goes after that spirit of unbelief. John the Baptist, as you read this passage, he's born in a time of great unbelief. For 400 years, they haven't heard from God it's like God's not t turned up any time. They're not getting any prophets speaking. There's, there's darkness. There's, there's, there's a period of silence. And John's born into this time. His father, a righteous man, a righteous man, but battling with unbelief. So when the angel of the Lord Gabriel comes to, uh, to his father, he, he acknowledges that he's a righteous man. He picks him out. So there's a great degree of faith and a love for God, but at the same time, he is, has his pervasive unbelief that characterizes his life. And he cannot 
believe what Gabriel says to be true. So John is born into this very environment where there is unbelief and it's like a, like a brick wall that God's people come up against. It's a ceiling over their lives. And if you've battled with this where you wonder why you can't break through and they always seem to be hitting a ceiling, it may be today that what you need to break in your life is the spirit of unbelief. So Luke 1.13, the angel of the Lord came and said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petitions have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will give him the name John. He will have joy and gladness. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Ghost while yet in his mother's womb. That's not bad, is it? He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, for he will go, sorry, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And we cannot be prepared for what God is going to do unless we deal with the spirit of unbelief. And most people do not even know that it's there. So now turn with me to Luke 17, verse 1. Now after six days, six days. So we know that six days lead into seven. It's quite profound. But that's where we are right now. We're at the end of the six-day lease on the earth. So we believe that in Genesis, God outlines the history of all the earth in creation we see the six days of creation. On the seventh day, there's a rest. And so this sixth day leads us into the very generation that we're in right now, this time period where we're stepping from the sixth day into the seventh day, where there is, there is the culmination of all the purposes of God. So what takes place in this story is an unveiling of what is about to take place in the church right now. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, three men. So we talk about the seven days of the earth, but also the third day church, which begins at the life of Jesus. And on the third day, and the Bible says in Peter that one day is like a thousand years. We are also in the third day. So we talked about seven days being Genesis and creation, but also the third day, starting with the life or the death of Christ to where we are today. So these three disciples represent that. And John being the last one mentioned, Jesus alluded to John that what is it to you if he still is alive when I come back again? So it's talking about the last day church that will be alive when Jesus returns. John's the one who sees himself as deeply loved by God. The church will get a revelation like never before of God's love for them. John also is the only one that writes three books. So we see over and over again these patterns about the third day church. So Jesus takes Peter, James and John. Maybe it's also a picture of the church coming into full alignment, spirit, soul and body, where God's going to transform every dimension of our life. He will come back for a bride that is equal in stature to his son. Not a limping bride, not a bride that's, that's bleeding, that's that's in pain, that's broken, but he's coming back for a perfected bride. Isn't that exciting? 
You think, who, me? Yes, you. He has more confidence in you than you have in yourself. Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain. I don't know about you, but that whole connotation is really interesting because to go up a high mountain takes a high degree of effort, does it not? So, so he's taking Peter, James, and John. Well, it seems a little bit unfair. What about the others? But Peter, James, and John seem to be men that wanted to pursue Jesus more than anybody else. So he will let anybody go up the mountain. The issue is not whether, it's not about excluding, it's about he takes those that will pay the price to go up the mountain. We can all go up the mountain. We can all be with him. We can all see what he wants to show us, but it takes effort. This is why I talk about asking, seeking, knocking. Salvation is free. Salvation is free. But pursuing God takes effort and self-discipline and hunger and passion. So he takes up the mountain, Peter, James and John. And he was transfigured before him. See, you have an invitation today to see Jesus in a deeper dimension. They saw Jesus on the ground at one dimension. But here's the deal. If you will climb up the mountain with him, you will see him in a way that others don't see him. And I don't know about you, but I want to see him like this. I want, to, I want Jesus to unveil all that he is. I want to see him because when we see him, we'll be like him. Does anyone want to see him in a deeper dimension? This is the whole thing about the tabernacle. As they walk into the tabernacle from the outer court to the holy place, to the most holy, holy of holies, there is a deeper dimension of Jesus unveiled to them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. I don't know about you, but I find that amazing. Yeah. Men that have been, you know, off the planet for some time, all of a sudden appear with Jesus. Moses and Elijah appear. These are the two heroes of for, for Peter, James, and John, and they're standing there next to Jesus. Now, we know Moses and Elijah represent something. And you may have heard people preach on the law and the prophets. But I want to put to you today that one of the things that define Moses and Elijah is this. They both supernaturally fasted for 40 days. Along with Jesus, here are three men on top of a mountain, the voice of the Father is about to come and declare over Jesus that he's his beloved son. But we have key men standing next to Jesus. And what sets them apart, as it were, from everyone else in the Old Testament is this, this anointing and hunger, depressing to God. And both of them fasted 40 days. Moses, he goes up to the mountain twice and he eats no bread or water and is supernaturally sustained in the presence of God. It's like his body slows down and he just waits on the Lord. Elijah, he's fed by an angel twice. The angel gives him food and he goes in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. And these two men appear on top of the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the third day church, I think God may be speaking to us. 
So you know the story that Peter has foot and mouth disease and he wants to set up a church on top of the mountain, sell cassettes, CDs, write a book, go on Elijah list, Facebook live, promote it. And the father comes down and deals with him. Peter ends up in the ground. This is an amazing story. But at the very same time, something's going on down below. I want you to turn with me to verse 14. So there's this amazing encounter we've read. Jesus unveils his true glory. Moses and Elijah are both there. And they come down from the mountain, verse 14. And there is a man and he comes up to Jesus and he kneels down and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he falls into the fire and often in the water. This term falls into is literally, in those days, it was a term that was used for those who tried to commit suicide. He was, the son was trying to kill himself. And I want you to know today that if you're desperate for a miracle, the existence of your need is evidence of God's supply. Did you hear that? The existence of a need is evidence of God's supply. Why do I say that? Well, here's a question. What came first, the last Adam or the first? The last. God always supplies before the need comes. And I love this, that Jesus is walking down to a need, but the supply is already there. And there are people here today that you've got tremendous needs. You need to hear the voice of the Lord today. The supply has already been given. Jesus is the supply. And Jesus said in verse 17, sorry, verse, let's go back to verse 16. So he said to Jesus, I brought my boy to the disciples, but they could not cure him. I've read this passage many times, and I don't know about you, but I, I I've often say to the Lord, that, that, that sounds like the church today. You're a miracle-working God. I believe that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. I've seen you do miracles. I've literally seen God do supernatural miracles. I don't need anyone to convince me. I've seen God do miracles. But by and large, this is a picture of most of the church, the Western church. They're trying hard, but not getting the job done. These are disciples that have seen Jesus move. They've cast out demons. They've healed the sick. But Jesus comes down from the mountain and he's surrounded by a pervasive atmosphere of unbelief. And they can't get the job done. And there's somebody in great need and the disciples can't deliver. I don't know about you, but that stirs my heart because when I see the needs of our city, I want to be an answer to the needs and not a problem. I don't want to just have words that preach about the good news of Jesus and his power, but forerunners come in both the spirit and the power of Elijah. There has to be power that is manifested when we preach, when we speak, when we live. There has to be a visible demonstration of the kingdom of God at hand, or else all we are is just a religious club. And Jesus comes down into this mess. And he's a man who is desperate because his son is trying to kill himself. 
and he brings the child to the disciples. They pray over the child, but they can't get the job done. And Jesus walks into this. And Jesus says, well, I guess it looks like it can't be done. Jesus answered and said, verse 17, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus said that? No, oh, sorry, guys, I didn't train you better. No, he said, unbelieving and perverse generation. Would he say that today to the church? Unbelieving, perverse generation. How long will I bear with you? Bring the boy here to me. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Unbelieving, it tells us that we are too disconnected from God. And perverse, it means that we are too connected to the world. He was saying to the disciples, you aren't yet connected to the Father like you should be, and you're way more connected to the world than you should be. And when you have that combination, you'll never get the job done. Bring the boy to me. And Jesus, in verse 18, rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Let me say to you, just because you and I have failed at times, it doesn't mean that it's God's will for the job not to be done. You may have laid hands on the sick. You may have believed over here, and it may not have happened like you thought it would. I want you to know today that it's not a reflection of the heart of God. When something doesn't work, it's not God's fault. Are you hearing me? It's not like God, if you change your mind, no, God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And this is the problem that the disciples had. They thought they were doing the right thing, but they weren't getting the job done. And Jesus comes along and the very moment he prays for that same child, he is delivered. It is God's will to meet the needs of mankind. So the disciples did what you and I should do. They came privately to the Lord once the crowd had left and said, Lord, what's the deal here? Why couldn't we cast out this demon? You've given us power and authority. We've seen it before. But why did we fail? Where are we going wrong? It's a prayer that we all should pray. Lord, I, I don't seem to be cutting it. I seem to have come to a limit in my Christian life, in my faith, in, 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 in breaking through what's going on. We should all be disturbed. We should all be stirred up. If you're, you're here today and you're comfortable, if you're satisfied with how church is, is, is going in this nation, then you need a fire inside you. You need to be stirred up by God because as we read the Scriptures, as we read through the Gospels, Jesus is a miracle-working God. He's a wonder-working God. He is the same today as He was yesterday. And so as I read this, I see myself in these disciples. Lord, what's going on inside me? Where am I failing? What am I missing? Because it's not you. It's me. Well, that's a bit rough. Well, if it's him and it's not me, then we're in trouble. But if it's me and it's not him, we can fix it. I just need to know what to do. So what's wrong, Lord? Why couldn't we cast this demon out? I don't know about you, but when I pray for people that are demonized and I have trouble or have had trouble in the past dealing with it, it 
I go home angry. What is going on? And Jesus said to them, I'm glad you asked. He said, the reason you couldn't cast it out is because of your unbelief. Did you hear that? Your problem, your greatest problem in dealing with the enemy is dealing with the unbelief that is inside your heart. He says, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, see, faith isn't a problem. He says, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing, how much? Nothing, nothing will be impossible to you. However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. And that passage there is deleted from some versions. It may appear in this story that the demon is the focus of this story. But the real focus is not the demon. The real focus is the unbelief that is down in that valley as they come down from the mountain. The disciples were concerned with the demon inside the boy, but Jesus was concerned with the unbelief inside them. Are you hearing that? They're focused on a demon and a boy, and Jesus is like, that's, not, that's, no, that's, that's irrelevant. That's just one of many problems you'll face. This is not about demons. This is about unbelief that's inside you. You're focused on a demon, and I'm focused on the unbelief. The enemy's not the problem. What's inside you is the problem. Disciples' question was about casting out demons. Jesus' answer was about casting out unbelief. Jesus is teaching a lesson in this passage. Cast out the spirit of unbelief and nothing will be impossible for you. If you can deal with unbelief in your life, nothing shall be impossible for you. Did you hear that? Is this going in today? If you want to see the power of God flow through you, you've got to deal with unbelief. Jesus in Matthew 9.25, when he healed Jairus' daughter, he, he went into the room and he cast out all those that were unbelieving. He, he got rid of all the, the unbelievers then he could heal. Peter comes to, to a lady called Dorcas who was a, a woman that made lovely clothes for everybody and she dies and he's called to come and pray for her. And when he gets into the room where her body is, there's widows all around Dorcas and they're crying and reminiscing about how she made wonderful clothes. And Peter walks into that room and he kicks out all the widows. Why? Because unbelief will stop the power of God flowing through your life. And Jesus is teaching the disciples a lesson You've got to deal with unbelief before you can get your breakthrough. Faith is not the issue. Did you hear me today? Faith is not an issue. Jesus said, you just need faith like the seed, a mustard seed. Jesus said, you have the very faith of God, Mark 11. Have the faith of God or you have the faith of God. You don't need to try and get faith. You've got it. You have a measure of of faith given to you. Your faith is not the issue. The issue is unbelief will keep faith strangled so faith can't manifest the answer. 
And Jesus said, this kind, unbelief, only goes out by prayer and fasting. I knew you'd shout amen for that one. Unbelief only goes out, and that's why the church struggles with it. Unbelief only goes out by prayer and fasting. Our fasting doesn't move God because he's not stuck. Our fasting doesn't deal with the devil because he hasn't got the problem. Our fasting does something inside us. It begins to deal with unbelief. I want you to turn with me to Romans 8 verse 10. I'm going to show you some things in the next few minutes. Listen to this. And if Christ is in you, how many people have Christ in them today? Good. I'm glad you said yes. If he is in you, your body is dead. Did you hear that? That's the flesh nature. That's the part that, that is looking for validation through the sense realm. He says, if Christ is in you, your body is dead. Unbelief always enters in through the sense realm. And he says, if Christ is in you, your body is dead, but your spirit man is alive unto righteousness. The moment Jesus comes into you, there are two positional truths. My body is dead. I am no longer manipulated by what I can sense, what I feel, what I think, what I, my mind, my will, my emotions, by physical uh, circumstances. I am no longer moved by that because my fleshly desires are now dead. Did you hear that? You know, I don't think they're dead. No, Jesus said they are dead. And he also said, and your spirit is alive unto righteousness. Well, we have less trouble believing that than we do about our body being dead. But unbelief will come in through the sense realm. And Jesus said here, if Christ lives in you, he has declared your body of sin dead and your spirit alive to him. So listen to this. When I pray, not if, but when I pray, when I pray in the Holy Spirit, when I pray to God, when I worship, when I read the word, it is affirming the positional truth that my spirit is alive unto righteousness, that I am born again, seated with Christ in every places. Every time I pray, every time I pray in the spirit, I am affirming what Jesus says to be true about me. Are you hearing that? And that's what happens when I pray in the Holy Ghost. Something begins to, I begin to realize I am not of the earth. I am of the spirit realm. That there is, there is a higher dimension about me than what I can see in the natural. As I pray, I am, every time I pray, every time I worship, every time I confess the word, I am affirming with Jesus what he says about me, that my spirit man is alive because of righteousness. Amen? And when I fast, I'm enforcing the positional truth that my body is dead. Did you hear me? Notice a quieter yes there. When I fast, I'm affirming that my body is dead because of sin. 
That whole nature is dead and it no longer has the power to rule over me, to dominate me, to be the leader of the pack, to manipulate and control and overcome my spirit man. So when I fast, I'm saying with Jesus, that part of me died at the cross. Unbelief comes in through the sense realm and causes my faith to go weak. Or maybe not the right term weak or to smother my faith. The reason Jesus comes down to the mountain and cures the boy instantly because he was a man of the spirit. He knew how to pray and he'd come through a season of great fasting. He has Elijah and Moses on the mountain. He's saying to Peter, James and John, your breakthrough will come as you live a life of prayer and fasting. You will go down from the mountain as you encounter me and you'll be able to deal with a world that is in great need. Church, if we are going to be the answer to this city with finances and wisdom and all the things that that the kingdom's about, breakthrough, healings, miracles, deliverance, we have to understand the ways of the kingdom. Our appetite for food represents all the appetites of our natural man. And when I deny my flesh, my spirit man has an opportunity to begin to soar like an eagle. You may want to write this down. Prayer connects us to God and fasting disconnects us from the world. Prayer and worship and confession It connects us to God. Well, I don't mean you disconnect. I'm saying it it brings us into a higher realm of, of intimacy. And fasting disconnects us from the world. And that's where unbelief comes in. You crooked and perverse generation. Unbelief pervades in this world. And the way we break it and, and continue to have it under control is that we buffet our body and we say, you are dead. And, and, and if you picture all the appetites of the flesh, they are culminated in our hunger, in our desire for food. And as we overcome that, we begin to take authority over all the appetites that are a doorway for unbelief. Prayer is the hand that grasps the invisible. Fasting is the hand that lets go of the visible. Did you hear that? Prayer is the way that we reach out to God for the unseen realm and fasting is the way that we let go of everything that can be seen and touched. Now, it said of Jesus that In Luke chapter 4, it says that when he went into the wilderness, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and and deals with the devil. And when he comes back, he comes back in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to say to you today that there are many believers filled with the Holy Spirit. They are born again. Jesus lives within them. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in their life, but they don't know how to function in the power of of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knew that there had to be a renouncing of natural things to embrace supernatural things. And he was leading the way for us. And he says that that we being disciples of him and him being the master, that we are to follow him in the way that he led. As you read the scriptures, Jesus never did anything major without fasting. When he called his disciples, before he ministered to the sick, before he would 
walk on water and all the amazing miracles that he did. It, it was, it was, there was before that a season of great prayer and fasting that enabled the Son of God to manifest his glory and his supernatural power. Jesus said in Luke 6.40, a student is not above his teacher. So why is it the church thinks it can get the job done without using the methods that Jesus used? A student is not above his teacher. Oh, yes, we are. We can build the church without pressing into God, without prayer and fasting. We don't need that. We've got programs. And everyone who's fully trained will be like his teacher. In Matthew chapter 6, oh, it gets better, church. After Jesus called his disciples in Matthew 6, he taught them the laws of the kingdom. Are you ready for them? He makes it really simple. He unveils the mysterious blueprint of the kingdom. You ready for it? He said, I'm only going to give you three things. Because I know, you know, that's enough to start with. And then what he said? He said, when you give... When you pray and when you fast. He's introducing the kingdom to the disciples. And he says, this is what my church will be known for. This will, will, this will be the engine room of every believer. When they give, when they pray, and when they fast. Many believers give. Well, that's a battle for some of them, but many do. And they make it a weekly thing to give. That's great. Many believers pray. They do. And some believers fast. And Jesus said, not if you pray and if you give and if you fast. He said, when? When you pray, when you give, and when you fast. And when you do these things, you will come into alignment and you'll break the power of unbelief. Now, I know for many of you, you're thinking, oh, this is not what I came to hear this morning. I came to get an answer for my problems. The disciples thought the demon was the problem. How do we get rid of the demon? Lord, how do I get rid of my debt? How do I get rid of my anger problem? How do I get rid of my relationship issues? How do I get rid of my loneliness and my frustration and my lack of understanding about my call? We can list a whole lot of things. And Jesus will say this one thing, how do you get rid of unbelief? You deal with that and faith will take off. And you'll begin to see clearly. You'll get a mountaintop experience. You'll begin to see how I see. And you'll come down from the mountain and you'll look at that same problem and it'll instantly be cast out. Or else you can strive and struggle. It bemuses me that we go around and around in circles looking for all different answers. Every answer except what Jesus outlined as kingdom values. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. You may say, Andrew, you're naive, you're simplistic. I want to say this today. That if every believer was, that, was, that, that got this revelation, if they prayed, gave, and fasted, the kingdom of God would come in great power to this city. I have no doubt. So you say you're a forerunning church. Well, congratulations. Forerunners lead the way. They prepare the way of the Lord. But I want you to know today that every single forerunner Lived a life of devotion in prayer and fasting. Because you can't prepare the way of the Lord 
if you don't know the way of the Lord. And the disciple's not above his master. And he said, if you want to have authority to bring in the kingdom, when you pray, when you fast, when you give. This kind comes out except by no other means. And the church can try every other means. And I don't mean to be, this is not my heart to criticize or put anyone down. It's to encourage today. But what we are seeing in the church today across the board, it's good. Many people are being saved. But the church would say the same thing to Jesus. When the demons come in, when people come in oppressed, we don't know what to do. And Jesus in an instant delivers what we take a lifetime to achieve. And he's given us a clue that if you're going to be a forerunner that prepares the way of the Lord, this kind will never move except by prayer and fasting. And if prayer and fasting is not part of our DNA for all of us, there will always be something missing. And we'll always have this issue with unbelief. Our sense realm will be highly activated and our spirit realm will be anemic. And I know the enemy will say to you today, well, just, 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 just take it easy. That's a bit over the top. You know, the moment you begin to fast, he says you're going to die. Your body screams, it says, this is not really good. You know, you're supposed to be careful. Don't, don't, don't get too extreme. Things will start going wrong. All hell will break loose. But you know something that as you begin to fast, you are reinforcing that positional truth that you are no longer directed by the things of the flesh. You're not moving God. You're not moving Satan. You're moving unbelief out of you. And you position yourself to hear the voice of the Lord for faith to rise. And when faith rises, nothing will be impossible for you. Your unbelief is what is keeping your faith crushed. Turn with me to a well-known passage in Isaiah 58, verse 6. Isaiah outlines the power of fasting. He says, Is not this the fast I have chosen, that you will loose the bonds of wickedness, addictions and sins that we can't break, thought patterns. The moment you begin to fast, the Holy Ghost will begin to go after thought patterns and addictive behavior and gateways that you've opened up to the flesh realm, he will start crucifying those things and putting them to death. You will undo heavy burdens. You will let the oppressed go free. You will break every yoke of bondage. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? So there you go, insight, revelation begins to flow. That you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. Fresh compassion begins to well up. A new love for Jesus and, he, and, and his church arises in your heart. Why? Because the flesh is being put to death. You're no longer looking at people through the flesh, being agitated by people, but something's beginning to change inside you. When you see the naked, that you cover him, and you do not hide yourself from your own flesh. This is one of the things that happens when you fast. God begins to reveal what's going on inside you. We love to hide ourselves. We love to hide what's going on. And as you begin to fast, God begins to reveal who you truly are. Some of the stuff that needs to come out, some of the things that need to come in. Then you will see your light break forth like the morning and your healing shall spring forth speedily. Do you see this? The moment we begin to shut down the flesh, 
God begins to move. If you're needing a breakthrough today, if you've come up to a ceiling and you can't budge, if you look back over the last five years and it's still the same old, same old, this is what you need in your life to break through those ceilings. If you're down the, mount, down the valley and you're struggling with the same old problem, you're trying to break through, you're binding the enemy and he won't move, you need Jesus to come down from that mountain full of the Holy Ghost and to begin to, to, uh, to deliver what you can't break through in. So we say, Lord Jesus, a disciple's not above his master. This is how you broke through. This is how I'll break through. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. His methods haven't changed. Matthew 6 hasn't been torn out of our Bible and replaced by programs, money and education. He said, when you pray, when you fast and when you give. And when those three things are flowing through the church, God begins to move speedily. He says, your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. There's unbelief in this church. That shouldn't come as a shock because there's unbelief in us. So when we come together, unbelief, it circulates and it tries to oppose the spirit of faith. But you know what? God's given us great answers through his word. You, say, you may say, well, I'm too old to fast, and, and that may be the case. You may not be in a physical condition to fast, but there are many other things you can do to suppress the flesh in your life. And as you do that, God begins to break through in new ways. When you pray, when you give, when you fast. This kind comes out by nothing except prayer and fasting. Enforcing the positional truth of my spirit man and enforcing the positional truth of my body, it is dead to sin. So I ask the question, do we have any forerunners? Fantastic. So Father, today, I thank you, Lord, that this spirit of unbelief does not have to remain. Because when you came into that room with Jairus' daughter, you cast out unbelief. And that room represents our heart today. And we say, Lord, you have permission to come in and clean out all the unbelief, even stuff that we don't know is there. We, we sense the effects of unbelief, but we may not be able to see where the root is. We invite you in today to break the power of unbelief over this church and over our lives today. We welcome you, Holy Spirit as our teacher and as our leader. And we thank you that you've deposited in every heart, that where into every believer's heart, a measure of faith. And so we ask now, Father, that you would too come and break this power of unbelief, that every entrance that is coming through the sense realm shall be shut, shall be broken in Jesus' name. I rebuke now the spirit of, of unbelief over this church. I break it over the church, over this city, and I break the spirit of unbelief over every heart and every life. 
every place where the flesh wants to rise up and say, but you haven't seen this, and but this could never happen. Every opposition to the Word of God, every false thought, everything that opposes the mind of God, everything that would rise up and say it can't be done, everything that would seek to crush our faith, we rebuke in the name of Jesus the spirit of unbelief. And we say, you have no right, no place in our heart in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray today that you would empower your people by the Holy Ghost to begin to pursue a life of prayer and devotion and fasting beyond what we could ever do in our natural. Maybe those today have tried and they felt like they failed. I pray for a supernatural impartation of Holy Ghost hunger in their hearts today, that they would cry out to know You, that even greater than our personal hunger pains will be our desire to break through into greater heights, greater realms, greater authority, greater release of Your glory. So I pray right now, Lord, that You would come and invade every heart in Jesus' Name. I rebuke unbelief. I rebuke the lies that keep agitating about the past failures, about what's not happened and why it could never happen. I break you now in Jesus' name. I exercise authority over you and I silence every religious voice, every lying voice in the name of Jesus. And I pray right now, Father, that you begin to stir by the Holy Ghost fresh hunger in your people. Confirm their position of their spirit that they are men and women of the Holy Ghost. Men and women seated at the right hand of the Father. And confirm their position of their flesh. They will no longer have control over their lives. Every lying thought, every accusation, every limitation that continually bombards them. We silence in Jesus' name. Father, teach us how to pray in the Holy Spirit. Teach us how to exercise our spirit man. Teach us how to overcome, Lord, all the works of the flesh and raise up a mighty generation of forerunners that have been with you on the mountain and are able to come down from that mountain into the valleys of the lives of people, into the valley of this city and bring a word that would cure the afflicted and set the oppressed go free. That is our desire, Lord. Lord, we want to carry that spirit and power of Elijah. And I thank you for it, Lord. Ah, I know the devil doesn't like hearing this message. But thank you, Father, that you're at work in Jesus' name. I sense in my spirit that God is bringing to the church an incredible anointing and ability to walk in spiritual discipline over our minds and over our bodies. He's bringing the church into complete alignment. And I thank you for your ability, Lord, for us to be able to do this. Strengthen us now. Lord, let it not be 
works of the flesh and striving and struggling, but we pray for a grace, a Holy Spirit grace to walk in this, I pray. Thank you, Father, that you raise up many, many forerunners in this house, men and women of the Holy Ghost. I thank you for that, Father. Just reach out to him right now. Thank you for establishing that this day, Lord. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Just begin to call out to him. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you for delivering me from all unbelief. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father.